Hello everybody and welcome to the newest episode of the Post Riders Pony Express, our general interest podcast. Uh, I'm your host, Mike Levito, and I'm joined this week by the one, the only, Lewis Ryan. Hi Mike, thanks for having me back. It's great to be here. <laughs> you don't have to sound like you're in a hostage video when you say that. Lars will be joining us a little later uh, in this episode, um, but today we are going to talk about uh, The Many Saints of Nork, also known as The Sopranos movie which Lewis and I both saw, and then later with Lewis Laura's. Uh, we're going to do another sort of like top 10 Rolling Stone list because that was fun when we did it uh, two episodes ago. But uh, yeah, for now, let's let's just jump right into The Many Saints of Newark, uh, which was directed by Alan Taylor, written by David Chase and Lawrence Connor, obviously based on The Sopranos, and stars Alessandro Nivola, Leslie Odom Jr., John Bernthal, Corey Stoll, Michael Gandolfini, Billy Magnuson, uh, Michaela De Rossi, John Magaro, Ray Liotta, Vera Farmiga, all-star cast, really. Um, and yeah, it is the a prequel to The Sopranos. It chronicles... It was kind of sold as the early life of Tony Soprano, and it certainly is that, but it's really the story of Dickie Moltisanti, who is, of course, the father of Christopher Moltisanti and a character who never appears in the series because he's long been dead, but who's, who's, who certainly casts a very long shadow. Um... And it is about sort of his um, personal relationships, his um, sort of rivalry with a a local um, mobster, basically played by Leslie Odom Jr., and uh, his experience in the Nork riots and then going into the seventies uh, until spoiler alert until his death. Um, so yeah, Lewis, let's let's start with the kind of the Sopranos in general. What is your relationship like with that show? Where was the last time you watched it? How, how, how much do you like it? You know, that kind of a thing. Uh, so I watched it two times from start to finish. Uh, I like the show. I I was sort of cool on it the first time I watched it, but then the second time I watched it, I really, like, enjoyed it a lot more. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I like the show. The last time I watched it, I think it was 2019, like, before the pandemic started. Mm. Uh I, I sort of had rewatched it all, uh, all six seasons over again, and uh, so I was excited to see this movie. So I'm I'm a fan of the show. Obviously, uh, it goes without saying, Mike. You and I are both from New Jersey. Yes, yeah. And I think, at the very least, um, <laughs> I would say it's sort of um, my my view of it is that it sort of perfectly captures. Besides the fact that it's a show about people in the mafia and the mob, I would say it sort of perfectly captures the feeling of like regular people just trying to lead regular lives in New Jersey, which is you and I both know people that are in the show, sort of like people that are right, in the show, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. I so I had uh, not really, I had not seen an episode until like over the summer, and it was just like a weird thing where I just had never watched the show my parents didn't have hbo when i was a kid so i never really had an opportunity to watch. like they didn't watch it um and i mean you know i was like we were both pretty young when the show was on the air so i don't know that my parents would have let me watch it had we yeah. actually had hbo um but yeah i just think i never got around to and then um my mom watched it for the first time she really liked it my sister liked it and she really liked it and i was like well I kind of have to watch it now, and also, obviously, this movie was coming out. I actually kind of started watching it in anticipation of this movie. I made it my goal to finish it before October 1st, which I did. I only finished it, I guess, two weeks ago. Um, and, yeah, it's a great movie. Like, I I think you could make a argument that it's, like, you know, the greatest TV show of all time, as many people have. Um, certainly one of the most influential. 
and you were right about it, you know, really evoking what it's like to live in New Jersey. And, you know, what I think the key to the show is that it's, it's, it's not called, you know, um, the Tony Soprano gang, right? It's called The Sopranos, right? It's not just about being in the mafia. It is about, you know, trying to, it's just kind of about life in like early 2000s New Jersey. You know, it's about class in a lot of cases. It's about sort of family legacy. It's about morality and mortality and depression. And it's about just a whole lot of things. It has a very, very wide scope. And it's just really, really well made. I, it's, it's very funny in addition to being very brutal and very serious. And yeah, it's like you said, like knowing people on it. It's like, yeah, it's like I, I'm watching this and I'm just like, yep, I know this person. I know this person. I know this person. They're different names. They're not literally the same people, but I, I know this person. And I, I've been in these, sometimes, there are some places where I've literally been, they go to Morristown a few times, just as an example, but, yeah, so, really great show. Um, yeah, and I guess before we transition into the movie, I guess it's just sort of like, so The Sopranos, it's like the, the shortest way to explain it is that it's really like an in-depth character study, in a way, of mm-hmm. Tony Soprano, yeah. by James Gandolfini, because we start the show, he's just sitting on a couch in the therapist's office, in the lobby, it's like we don't know anything about this guy and then by the time we get to the end of the series we know so much about him we know about his childhood adolescence his life his family his other family in the mafia we know like you know his fears desires his innermost things it's really like probably the most in-depth character study we'll ever see on television you know at any time and so this begs the question it's like now we're moving into this movie which is really the first time in the series in a major way we're shifting sort of away from tony soprano right Mm -hmm. yeah exactly yeah and i guess uh the top line question is basically just what did you think about that and i guess generally what did you think of this movie i think we have kind of different opinions on it but um partly it's like what were you expecting and then what did you end up getting i guess so i i went into this i wasn't like one of these people like i i I know because like my mom was like looking up the videos because like different than your parents my parents like watched the sopranos and really enjoyed it. i actually remember back in 06 and 07 when it was like the the march to the the last episode mm-hmm. you know it's like what's the ending gonna be and i like viscerally remember like you know them talking about the ending me asking them like how do you think it's gonna end and then when the ending actually happened you know and there was sort of the big uh, <laughs> aftermath of that uh which we could get into at a, at a different time, but it's, you know, it's just been talked to death. Um, yeah. So lots of anticipation, but I, I, for one, wasn't like, but so what I was saying is my mom was watching like the many saints of Newark trailer explained and right, like right. people analyzing every frame. Like it's, you know, every frame of the trailer, like it's a star Wars movie or something. I wasn't like one of those people. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I knew that it was going to be about Dickie Moltisanti. So that was always at the forefront. It's like, this isn't about, this isn't like the Sopranos prequel. Right. It's not going to be like, uh, I don't know if you remember that SNL sketch with the, the Sopranos yeah. style. Yeah, it is. Yes, I do. <laughs> um, which I'm sure a lot of people might be thinking of when they watch this movie. Um, so I wasn't expecting that. But, and, and the cynical part of me is like, okay, so it is about Dickie Moltisanti, but HBO and Warner Brothers, they're going to market the heck out of the fact that this is a Sopranos prequel movie. This is, it's it's not about Dickie Mult- It's about Tony Soprano right, right. and how he became Tony Soprano. But I was like, oh, it's not really. But now having seen the movie, it actually kind of is sort of like 
a Tony Soprano prequel. Not in an overt way, but it is definitely an important part of the movie. But it's also about Dickie Moltisanti. And I thought it was a, a very well done movie. Um, that's sort of uh, my top line overview of it. I wouldn't say it's like a five star movie. I would say it's like a four out of five movie, but it was very well done. Um, I'm glad that the the running time was brisk in an age where lots of movies, they seem to run forever and ever or get turned into mini miniseries willy nilly. And a lot of people seem to, you know, want more, just constantly want more. I'm glad that this was, you know, two hours in and out. It told a story from beginning to end. Um, and, you know, I, I was left walking away satisfied. You know, this is, I wasn't expecting, you know, anything to be like, this movie is going to equal the totality of The Sopranos. All 86 right, episodes right. are going to be, we will have that amount of quality in this movie. I was just like, it's going to be an enjoyable movie, hopefully somewhat intelligent. And, you know, for top top uh, view from 30,000 feet, I would say it delivered on my expectations. Yeah, so well, we should also point out that a, a big part of, like, the marketing is that uh, in this movie, well, for half of it, Tony's played by Michael Gandolfini, who is, of course, the son of James Gandolfini, who played the original Tony Soprano, and who passed away about 10 years ago now. Um, but, yeah, so I... The movie did not work for me as well as it worked for you. And I think part of that is my expectations were probably somewhat misaligned. I also knew it was going to be about Dickie Moltisanti. I was kind of excited for that to be the fact. Like, I didn't really want it to be like the you know, Sopranos Diaries. And was interested to see what, what they were going to do. And, like, I knew, like, the, the, the Nork riots were going to play a part. I was kind of just see how that would be folded into it. Um, but I think having finished the series so soon... Um, Having watched the trailers a few times, and also having... Did you see it in a theater, or did you just watch it at home? Uh, I watched it in a... I have, at, at home. I have a nice TV set up, and yeah. I watched it at, on my couch at night in the dark, so pretty close. I did not I did not get to watch it in the theater. Yeah, so I actually went with my dad to... My dad, who had never seen the entire series, he decided he wanted to go anyway, but I, I went with okay. him to a theater. Um, and... What did he think? He, he we, we came out with the same idea where it was just kind of okay. I felt that it lacked a lot of focus. It felt like it was, you mentioned how it was brisk, and I, I also kind of appreciate that, but at the same time, it felt like there were maybe like eight Sopranos wor episodes worth of ideas packed into two hours. And it felt like there wasn't a clear enough focus. I never really felt like I got to know Dickie Moltisanti. Um... And I felt like the ending was, like, frankly, like, it was, it ended, and I was just kind of like, well, was that it? And, uh, it was... No, no, Mike, there's a show after <laughs> yes, that. I know. But it, it just felt, it was so underwhelming and anticlimactic to me. Again, I don't think it was, like, the worst thing I've ever seen. I wouldn't even say it's bad. I just thought, it, and part of it too, right, is that, like, this, this just looks and feels so much different than the show, Right. The show feels kind of lived in, um, and this just felt so kind of glossy to me. And I'm sure there's, like, technical explanations for that, based on, like, how they filmed it or whatever. But it just felt kind of waxy and artificial in a way that the show didn't. Um, and I also just feel like it might just be David Chase's writing style doesn't translate well to, like, a more modern film. I just felt like the pacing of the dialogue, even, would just felt kind of off, but, like, translated to an episode of The Sopranos that might have felt better. I don't know. It just did not compute for me at all. Okay, uh, I I can I'm hearing all of your 
complaints. And, like, I agree with them, but at the same time, I, like, disagree. Because I've heard these, you know, people, I've read people online sort of complaining about the same thing, like, you know, lack of focus and whatnot. I guess that's what I'll just stick primarily with. Mm. It's that it makes me think of, like, what if these people, if people, um, like, the Robert Altman film Nashville. Right. If people saw that, if it was, you know, if it was like a TV show before that, and then people saw Nashville, be like, well, you know, they didn't explain every single little thing. It's like this movie should have been, you know, nine hours long. It's like you can't just make a nine-hour movie. So I thought it, this movie reminded me of something like that from the '70s, that sort of style of film, mm-hmm. where it's like not not everything needs to, you know, be explained. It's sort of you're free-forming around, you know, we're getting a feel of sort of, you know, the atmosphere of, you know, being with these characters in this time. And I feel like Dickie, I felt like, you know, I'll, I'll agree that Dickie Moltisante isn't like, he's not, you know, equal to Tony Soprano in terms of compelling, you know, after six seasons and 86 episodes, of course, how can you attempt to try that after two hours? But, you know, I thought he he had like a plot point, plot purpose, I mean, mm-hmm. we know that from the series and... um. I don't know. I, I thought Alessandro Nivola played him well. I thought he had an interesting arc. I wouldn't say, you know, the you know, the storyline itself sort of reinvented the wheel in terms of like, whoa, this is so new. I've never seen anything like this before. But, you know, I thought it was well done and effective. Um, but I, I'll agree with you on the point that it's like glossy. But, you know, I mean, The Sopranos had, had some pretty slick shots towards yeah. the end in like the last two seasons. And um you know i mean the clothes i mean it is like 60s clothes and stuff but i mean it is like supposed to be like that's new at the time right right so uh, i'll let it pass um you know it was fine with me but um i think but for me the thing that really sort of anchored it was sort of um ray Liotta's character mm-hmm. characters rather right, right. who i felt like they they really helped anchor the movie where it's sort of like there's the top line view of like Dickie Moltisanti versus um, Leslie Odom Jr.'s character Harold, and that's at like the top. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting that you brought up how you felt it was anticlimactic. Mm-hmm. But I would posit to you, isn't that like sort of the the in the essence of the Sopranos TV show? Most of it being an anticlimax. <laughs> that's no. it, that's an interesting point. I think I would argue that. I don't know if I. I don't think I would call the finale an anticlimax as much as I would call it like it. Bri- <laughs> it's like it goes to the edge of climax and then just never finishes, basically, right? Well, I, I'm even talking about more than just the the mm-hmm. series finale. Most every arc in the series is really yeah. anticlimax. I, I I see what you mean. I guess it didn't feel. It just didn't click for me in this movie, right? Um, I, I think you're right, and like that's not to say this movie doesn't have a resolution because it does, but it ju- I just felt like I didn't feel like there was sort of like the necessary rising action necessarily. Um, it didn't really feel just like really well put together in the way they built to um, spoiler alert, but not really Dicky Moltisanti's death, um, and I feel like once he does die, it just kind of ends, and. Um, yeah, I, I, and it just didn't, like, work in the way that... And I, I think it's interesting what you said about the Altman thing. I've never seen Nashville. I've only seen one Robert Altman movie, Gosford Park. Uh, I think part of what... 
I, I, I think I may have liked this movie better if it wasn't framed through Christopher Moltisanti's narration. Because I think that it kind of promises to... Um, it, 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 it promises things it doesn't end up delivering. And I've also read that, like, some people think that, like, this is supposed to be a... Because throughout the show, Christopher Moltisanti is an aspiring screenwriter, that this is supposed to be, like, a screenplay he writes and presents at the gates of hell. Um, and I think that... I Like, his narration promised a, a, a tidiness that I didn't get. And I'm not against untidy storytelling, but, um, you know, he kind of ends by saying, you know, this is my Uncle Tony, the guy I went to hell for... But I don't really think I ended up learning that much more about Tony than we knew about him in the series. And it also didn't really feel like, like I said, it was his story. It was Dickie's story. Um, so, yeah, I think that kind of hurts a little bit. Um, yeah, I'll, I'll respond to that. I do think um, it's definitely sort of a double-edged sword um, using the device of Christopher posthumously as the narrator. Um, we know from leaked reports that there were scenes filmed with Edie Falco as Carmela to help frame the movie. And, you know, you could argue it's like, did we really need sort of a framing device at all? But I thought it was interesting using Christopher as the narrator. And the interpretation I took, as opposed to this is a screenplay, it was sort of the idea of like, you know, once you're dead, you can sort of like, how do I explain it? So like, you know, all knowledge is revealed to you. Now, so much of Christopher's arc was, you know, his father, you know, uh, predeceasing him at an early age, and, you know, Tony sort of adopting him as, like, a adopting Christopher, you know, being, like, a father figure to him. So I thought it was interesting to view it in the idea. It's, like, that Chris is, like, watching this. Chris is finally, like, getting to see his father, and it's, like, what life was like and how Tony and him interacted and stuff. So I was doing it through that, and I thought maybe this is just me reading in too much to more than David Chase himself intended, but I thought that helped make the movie sort of a, a richer experience in my eyes is the idea of Chris sort of uh, seeing his father. And I think it was interesting because this hasn't been pointed out in interviews with critics who have asked David Chase, because like a lot of scenes um, are, you know, scenes that we've seen in the series sort of redone, like the scene of um, Tony watching his father get arrested um at the amusement park mm -hmm. yeah 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 that's that's recreated and there's been a lot of people pointing out to david chase it's like hey these are playing out a little differently than they were presented in the show is that deliberate is that sort of a memory chief thing and david chase has said yes so it's like we're finally seeing like the true story of everything and we see how people in the series have mythologized dicky and it's like dicky sort of if we take everything everyone says literally about Dickie in the show, it sort of kind of clashes with, with what we see in the movie, like the idea that he's a drug addict mm -hmm. that was mentioned in the show, and that's really not the case at all, as we see by the end. It was this unfortunate case of mistaken bottle of pills that were yeah. meant for Tony's mother mm. that sort of led to this whole mythologizing of Dickie Moltisante. So I thought it was interesting in that way how we're seeing like the real real story and it's like the real way these characters because i think that's um going back to like the show and the sopranos the thing about the show is that every character is really that makes the writing so good is that every character every character is contradictory they're saying one thing but they're really thinking like the opposite 
to really like like I want to be with you, Tony. It's like I don't want to be with him. It's like I love you. I don't love him. It's like so the characters are constantly like deceiving themselves. They're complicated people, much in the way like you and I are complicated three dimensional people. Um, but it's like this movie is just presenting like the straight truth, and I I don't know. I thought that was really interesting. Yeah, I, uh, what you said about the pill bottle. I didn't put uh, that because I was also thinking like, man, they like they say he was a drug addict in the show. And they don't show that. I didn't put together that that was the misconception because he had the bottle of pills. I thought that was just kind of a comment on, um, you know, Tony's eventual depression diagnosis and his use of medication and how his mother was dishonest about the whole thing and kind of threw Dickie under the bus. Um, but that's good. Uh, a good observation. Yeah, so yeah, I mean, that's not even an observation I, I, I you know, consciously thought of. I, I read someone else put sort of put that together, and I was like, oh, that is interesting. Mm -hmm. I didn't even realize. Yeah, I am open to liking this idea more on, like, rewatch. Like, there might be things I just didn't pick up on that would improve it and maybe improve the show. Um, but you mentioned Edie Falco, and you mentioned how it kind of replaced some scenes uh, that were either alluded to or actually portrayed in the series. And... I am curious about your, your thoughts on the cast, right? Because this was, in a lot of cases, you had um, actors trying to play younger versions of characters who were actually on the show. I'm curious um, who you thought did a good job, who you thought did a bad job, you know, who, what you thought about the casting in general. Uh, well, I mean, I think it's obvious. I mean, everyone's talking about Michael Gandolfini. I yeah. think he certainly does a very good job of, you know, playing his father's iconic role. Um, so, you know applause to him um and the other characters i mean i think everyone played their character pretty well um i know you have sort of problems with the age discrepancies yeah and stuff well i all i'll say is that like i am very confused by the continuity because i had always assumed in the show that silvio and tony were around the same age but this makes it pretty clear that uh, that wasn't the case. <laughs> um, and I just was extremely confused by that. It makes it seem like they're like 10 or 15 years apart, which is Stephen Van Zandt is 11 years older than James Gandolfini, but I didn't realize that was supposed to be like canonical. Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, it's ultimately a fictional product. Right. And um, to me, it's sort of like if this is the thing you're focused on, it's like. Um, I guess, you know, that that's sort of the thing that you notice when you're not engaged in the movie. Right, right. If you're focusing on this, some something got messed up somewhere. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, I mean, it's like, you know, uh, the difference between a 10 and a 20-year-old is vast. I would think the difference between a 45 and 55-year-old is, you know, not as right, yeah, drastic. Yeah, yeah, um, And it might just, Tony might just look older because he's, you know, like, bald yeah and fat <laughs> <laughs> and spoiler alert silvio's bald too <laughs> but he doesn't look bald um, um it was interesting i mean i i just want to say everyone did a really good job mm -hmm. um but you know the young polly it was it was interesting to see young polly in the mm -hmm. show because like so much of it is just like he's this like old guy so it was, yeah. it was interesting to me to see him so young <laughs> yeah yeah it was interesting and um, played by a guy who looks pretty different than Tony Sirico, but they clearly went to lengths to like put prosthetics on to make it more like him. Um, yeah, I thought like the two who stood out to me were Vera Farmiga as Livia. I just thought it was very good, and then 
Also, uh, Corey Stolas Jr. I thought was pretty great. I like <laughs> Jr. is like one of my. To me, he's one of the most entertaining characters of the show, and I thought Corey still did a very good job of like evoking Dominic Chianese or however you pronounce his name. Um, and if there's one, I I, I thought John Magara was actually very bad as Silvio. Like I thought he was just doing like a pretty cut rate. Steven Van Zandt impersonation. But, I mean, he wasn't in it for a super yeah. long time. Well, and, and this is the thing I would respond to that. It's like Silvio and Polly aren't, like, yeah. depthful characters. No, no. <laughs> They're essentially comic relief. So I can I can agree with you somewhat, but it's like, at a certain point, it's like the they're cartoon characters. Yeah. I feel like Silvio gets, like, one arc during the entire show, and it's when Tony's in the hospital, and he's, like, the de facto boss. Um, yeah. Steven Van Zandt, I also just don't think he's a very good actor either, so, you know. Um. <laughs> I think I, I, he got better. Yeah, yeah. Up. And he did what he had to do. It's, um, it's, it's like, if I, you know, there were some people at the time, some Italian-Americans who were offended by this show. I, I am not. I don't, I think most people are not. But like, if there was one character I'd be offended by, it'd probably be him. But, <laughs> I mean, again, I just think, I just, he's, he's fine. Yeah. Um, I do, I do really like that scene at, uh, between teenage Tony and his mother in the kitchen. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Where it's like, it starts off so happy, mm-hmm. and then it just becomes like this nightmare, and it's like, my God. Yeah. You have to deal with this every day. And it's like, you know, everyone has to deal with, you know, their parents in some way, but at a certain point, it's just, like annoying. Yeah. And, you know, considering what eventually happens in the series, it's, you know, kind of heartbreaking to watch. Yeah, exactly. If, if there's one thing this movie does well, it conveys what a nightmare would have been being the child of Johnny Boy and Livia Soprano, and why you would end up looking, to, looking up to somebody like Dickie Moltisanti. I guess just, just to touch on a little bit, because I feel like we haven't talked about too much. Um, you know, so Leslie Odom Jr. plays this character who's who's newly introduced Harold McBrayer. Um, you know, the, the Sopranos famously had kind of a fraught relationship with portrayals of African Americans, um, and uh, so this is kind of like a big deal. Um, what what did you think of that storyline? What did you think of his character? Um, How do you think it fit in? Yeah, well, I mean, I think it goes without saying that this is. <laughs> possibly the greatest American African American character in the show's history. Oh yeah, <laughs> not a hard, high bar to clear, unfortunately. <laughs> yeah. Um, what do I think? I I mean I think the thing about his character more than his relation to the other characters was probably like the social impact as he's like sort of the ambassador to like what the african-american experience was like mm-hmm. in the late 60s obviously a time fraught with change the newark riots obviously riots are a big deal um it's no fun for anyone and you know uh it's been said you know this was all shot before george floyd but it can't help but still resonate right, yeah. today and it's sadly irrelevant um but let's see. Other other than his social, the so sort of social impact, um, I, don't, I thought he was a good enough character. Uh, <laughs> I, I mean, I think I think there's certain moments. Ah, I don't know. <laughs> I'm just pretty much dancing around the fact that I I don't know if there's really a whole lot to talk about right. there. There's no there there. I do think yeah. that the scene. Where it sort of is like, it is sort of a big climactic scene in the Sopranos thing. It's the shootout at the, 
Is that supposed to be like the old Artie Bucco's restaurant? Yeah, I couldn't really tell, but I, I know what you're talking about. Yeah. Yeah, and that that was a really tense scene, yeah, and they're yeah. um, it was really well done. And I actually thought that that was going to be like the end of the movie. Mm-hmm. I was actually surprised how like I went up to get a drink, and I was surprised how much more time there was left in the movie because mm-hmm. I was watching it at home. Mm-hmm. So um, I thought that was a really well done scene. And then, but I don't know. I don't really have a lot to say about Harold other than he's just sort of, um, it, his story, he is kind of a foil to Dickie about like a man going in his own way, trying to do, strike his own path. And I guess in a way he sort sort of succeeds mm-hmm. where Dickie does not. But I don't know. <laughs> I, I, I really don't have a lot. To, it's, it's tricky. I don't know how to, how to say this without making it sound like I just think it's bad. Yeah, well, that's, I mean, you can think it's bad, that's fine. Yeah, I, I thought it was an interesting wrinkle, um, and I thought the idea of, um, I feel like there, there is, you know, as, as much as The Sopranos is a character study, it's like, they do find ways to sort of, like, you know, touch on issues of the day, if you will, right? There's lots of allusions to the war on terror and things like that, and, um, I think it's just, like, an interesting, um way to kind of look at like you know nork is this sort of like you know this this city that has sort of like a, a tumultuous social past and you know i feel like you kind of you couldn't really make a movie in nork in the late uh, that takes place in the late 1960s without having you know a prominent black character and i think that um you know this idea of harold deciding he's done sort of taking it from the italians and he's going to create his own um operation basically like that, I feel like that's a storyline that plays out a lot within the show, right? Is somebody who's just, like, tired of not being the boss and then trying as hard as they can to be the boss. Um, so it, it fit in that regard. But, yeah, I don't know. It was, you know, not the greatest story ever told, but it was fine. Um, all right. So let's uh, – we, we talked about this before about the death of Dickie Moltisanti. So in the series, um, there's an episode in which Tony – gives Christopher the name of the man who he says killed Dickie Moltisante um, and tells Christopher, gives Christopher the option of killing him as kind of a way to prove his loyalty to Tony. Um, of course, it's never really clear if this guy actually did kill Dickie or is just kind of, you know, someone Tony wanted to, to be rid of. And then we find out in this movie who is responsible for the death of Dickie Moltisanti. It ends up being Junior. Although we don't actually see who pulls the trigger. So I was kind of curious, um, did you like that it head-on addressed who kind of killed him? Do you think it, did it change the way you viewed that episode, or what? Yeah, I'd always sort of taken the impression with that episode that it wasn't really the cop. Mm-hmm. So um, I knew it was probably going to be something different. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel like if it was, like, the cop or something, it would kind of been as you say, anticlimactic or something. But I don't want to sound like I have a big head, but it's like I knew, I like knew when I watched it. Like when Junior fell yeah. and Dickie was laughing, I'm like, oh, Junior's going to do it. <laughs> He's going to have Dickie killed. So I was like, they actually did it. Mm-hmm. Dickie killed. Which in, in a way, it doesn't, you know, it's like you were saying, it's like that cop. It's like it would have changed that episode. This, I feel like it changes like the series mm-hmm. in a way. It sort of recolors it. Because I feel like, the, the thing that sort of irks me about the Sopranos finale, 
which I think you would probably say, you know, Mike, you might agree, is a great episode of television. Right. Everyone always talks about, like, just the last scene, though. Mm -hmm. But the scene right before is, like, a very well-done, heartbreaking scene between Tony and Junior mm -hmm. in the retirement home, where Junior, like, has no memory. His brain is, like, completely broken. And it's, yeah. like, this very touching scene where Tony's like, you were my father. Mm -hmm. It's like, you were the king of New Jersey. You ran New Jersey, and mm -hmm. Junior is just, like... It doesn't make any sense to them now. Mm -hmm. So they always had sort of a like a warm, well, not always, but they had a pretty warm relationship by the end of the series. And knowing, uh, knowing now that Junior is responsible for killing Dicky Moltisanti and sort of sending Tony onto this path of you know darkness, um, you know it's it's kind of heartbreaking. It kind of twists a knife knife in your stomach, I would say. Yeah, um, and and. Um, you bringing that up makes a lot of sense because it does feel like you get the sense throughout the movie that Junior is, is, is jealous of Dickie and it makes sense that, you know, because Dickie's not literally Tony's uncle, right? It's like he's like a second cousin once removed or something and they call him his uncle because that's just kind of what you do. Um, and clearly Tony looks up to him in a way he doesn't look up to Junior. So there is kind of like this unspoken jealousy that Junior has and makes sense that it's almost like he's trying to reclaim his nephew in a way, reclaim his adoration by eliminating Dickie. Yeah, it's interesting that you bring all that up because it, it is like they call Dickie like his uncle, but mm. Junior's his uncle. It's like right. that's that's another connection where it's like I, I just you just put that together for me. So I feel like, <laughs> you know, it's like this, this feels like a very well done script. It feels like people <laughs> yeah. thought about it. But it's also interesting that Junior has him killed for basically no reason. <laughs> right, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yes, has him killed because he laughed at him and he hurt his back. Yeah, um, that 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 part though when when Corey Stoll falls over and he says that yeah, uh, phrase line. that Junior said yeah. is like, oh, he got it. He's yeah. nailing this role. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. That and he doesn't have the making of a varsity athlete. It's like it's all yeah. all, all he really needed. Um, all right. So I think we're gonna end the discussion soon. But so I was thinking about this and. Uh, I was thinking about sort of like, quote-unquote, prestige TV, right? And obviously, The Sopranos is a big part of it, arguably the originator. And it now has its own movie. Breaking Bad, another acclaimed prestige TV show, had its own movie, uh, El Camino. And then uh, Deadwood, which is, I think, underappreciated in some ways, but also an HBO show, had yes. its own movie. So are you asking if they should bring back The Wire? <laughs> <laughs> well, I am kind of... I, it does make me think that maybe they should make a Wire movie because I feel like it's the one that doesn't have one yet. But I guess I'm curious... Um, uh, where do you think this movie fits in as far as maybe... Is it as good or as bad as those movies? Or not as bad. I thought those, those movies were good. Like, do you think it's as good as any of those movies? And also, like, what what should be next? Or should they so even exist in the first place? So the question you're asking is comparing this movie to El Camino and the Deadwood movie. Sure. Okay. Um, so that's an interesting question. So the Deadwood movie, obviously Deadwood was a show that was sort of um, ended before its time. Yeah. For an actually incredibly complicated business reason. <laughs> yes. So the Deadwood movie was a thing that people talked about for like years and years and years and the fact that it finally happened was it was great and uh, you know it's a great movie El Camino was sort of you know they obviously had that avenue to explore of like what happened to Jesse Pinkman so there was sort of a lingering question 
at the end of Breaking Bad. Um, and obviously but both of those are, are sequels. Yeah. They're continuing yeah. the story as opposed to The Many Saints of Newark, which is a prequel. Mm-hmm. So, hmm. Bearing that in mind, was this a story that needed to be told? Um, <laughs> well, I mean, okay, so other than the fact that it's just, you know, fiction and harmless entertainment, um, does this add more? I feel, I feel like it does based on what I, we were just talking about with junior and a bunch some other stuff that this recontextualizes a lot of the show and it's sort of to compare this to let's say twin peaks and season three of twin peaks it shows the folly of um how one one tiny moment in time sort of ripples outward as oh. years go on and so by the time Sorry to spoil Twin Peaks season three. By the time it's like you have that opportunity to go back and change an event, sort of thirty years gone, that's gonna have huge effects. And I feel like this movie it sort of shows that. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like I feel. You know, I mean, a lot of this movie was marketed as like who made Tony Soprano, and I feel like there was a way. There was obviously Warner Brothers had in mind. It's like a much more like. Tony Soprano centric prequel, but I feel like this film really uh, sewed the thread enough of like Tony's soul or something is at stake, and Dickie Moltisante could help him, you know, achieve something different in his life. And I feel like it really, by the time it gets to the end, it kind of, I feel like it successfully. You know, it, it meets the bar for success in terms of successfully conveying that Tony, Tony's soul was put on this path by the situation. So I feel like it, it is, in a way, a necessary movie. <laughs> necessary. It, it, it seems as necessary as... It, in a way, I feel like it is as necessary as El Camino and Deadwood is. Um, there. I'm sorry, that was very long-winded. No, no, that's fine. I, I think... Yeah, I think I've talked myself, or we've I, you've talked me, we've talked each other into it being necessary. Um, and it, it does, this, this conversation does make me want to possibly watch it again, um, even though I was underwhelmed on initial viewing. Um, but yeah, that's... Uh, well, we'll you, you just watched the show, so does, does, this, does this seem like something you know different? Does it seem like a vestigial limb, or does it fit right in? It feels, um, it's just, it, 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 it does feel different. It, it feels, I don't know, like I said, it, it is just such a different, it just feels like it comes from such a different mindset. It, it, it really lacks a kind of, um, I don't want to say realness because that's kind of vague, but like, you know, I felt like there was a degree of just kind of like I've said it, I, I've already said it, but like livedness to the series, right? And it, it felt, um, you know, very um, there's something about it that just felt very live. That this movie just it felt a little more wooden to me. But I, I don't know. If that's really a helpful analysis. But I I don't know that it's really. I don't know that is necessary. I don't. I also think it doesn't hurt the legacy of the show, right? It doesn't ruin it in hindsight by any means. Um, 
but it is a little bit of a come down i think but again you're asking to come down from what could be you know one of the greatest american works of the 21st century and you're trying to it, it's hard to make something to live up to that so yeah no i feel like this in no way harm, harms the legacy of the show if anything i feel like it proves that you know david chase still has it in a way yeah he's been mostly off the radar since um sopranos wrapped up in 2007 yeah um and i feel it and when i see people like just saying like that this was bad you know say like giving it like a one or one and a half star review it just makes me like like what are you doing yeah yeah it's yeah i i again like i didn't really like it that much but it's not like that bad like i, I would i wouldn't even call it bad right like i said it's just kind of like it just didn't really do anything for me uh is are there episodes of the show you would consider worse than this movie um there's gotta be there's like a couple yeah the, like the this second episode is not very good um some of the early episodes are a little like rough because they're clearly just trying to figure out what exactly they're trying to do and there there is one episode oh, i forget which one it is oh i think it's remember when actually which people always quote but like that's the episode to me that just feels like they're killing time like i do feel really? like um there, there are some episodes where it feels like they're killing that's what i also didn't like the um that one episode where he has like the dream where he where he he realizes he has to kill uh tony blondetto <laughs> I, I like I, I i didn't like that i just thought it was like kind of a little like masturbatory honestly but um well yeah i mean th- th- this is fodder probably for another whole other podcast right, yeah. episode but yeah the the you know the the sopranos was a show that was you know, wasn't you know too afraid to experiment with the the forms of television and whatnot and in addition and somewhat contradictory this sopranos was also a show about like the mundanity of life in yes. a way and I feel like it's hard, you know, when you're in a movie format, two hours, it's one that's also taking place over a span of, you know, half of a decade to, you know, establish, you know, mundanity, um, you know, for a long period of time. And then two, going too weird with it. And then, you know, you risk, you know, losing the audience for a good portion. So in, in that respect, this movie sort of had to ride a line. Um, it might help, you know, I'm not saying you know you need this explained but it sort of is like it does feel like what mike said where it's like it needs to ride this line of like everything has to move along it has to tell this story but it can't get you know as strange as the show did and it can't really explore that much of mundane modern life because one it's not set in modern day and two it has to tell a whole story in two hours exactly yeah and by the while i was talking shit about remember when i looked it up just to make sure what the episode i thought it was and it is but i noticed that um because that it part involves uh the investigation of tony's first ever murder character named yeah. willie overall and there's a character many scenes of nork named i think it's like lyle overall overall or something like that yeah yeah there's no, no I, I caught that when uh, I was watching, yeah, there's a lot of fan servicey tidbits in this it, movie, and I feel like yeah. none of it made me angry. It it is, yeah, I guess, and I did, I guess, I felt like it just kind of felt like an Easter egg hunt at some point. Um, but you know that that may work for some people. Um, yeah, uh, so that's the Many Saints of Newark. 
Uh, thanks, thanks for talking with me about that. Yeah, I, you know, I think we would both say if you're a fan of The Sopranos, yeah. go watch it. Oh yeah, definitely. Yeah, don't if you watch the show, definitely do not avoid it. I don't know how much you'll get out of it if you've never seen the show. I actually don't think it's really worth watching if, if you haven't. But I, I feel like, <laughs> I mean, I don't know. In me, my opinion, I feel like it would hold up. I feel like it would probably even be better to someone who hadn't seen the show. Um, you know, like I said, as just like its own movie, mm-hmm. sort of. Like, take Nashville as an example. Right. Um, also, go watch Nashville. Yeah. If you haven't seen yeah. that. Yeah, do that. I'll include myself in that because I haven't seen it. But uh, many scenes in Newark. Thanks for talking with me about that, Lewis. And uh, we'll be back with Lars and Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Albums of All Time after this. Hi, I'm Lars Emerson. And I'm Mike Levito. And we're the hosts of the Post Writers podcast, Watching Mates. It's our podcast in which we explore the trends in film under each post-war presidency and reflect on how presidents and the zeitgeist of the era shaped the movies of their time. Episodes air every two weeks, so be sure to check it out wherever podcasts are found or on thepostwriter.com. Okay, this is Michael and Lewis are back, and we're joined now by Lars Emerson. Ah, thanks for having me, Mike. It's good to be back. Of course. And um, so two episodes ago, we were talking about the recent re- recently released 500 Greatest Songs of All Time list from Rolling Stone, and we uh, read through the list and kind of gave our opinions on it. And I feel like we had a good time doing it. I feel like it made for some good content. And I thought, hey, you know, we don't really have a lot else to talk about today, so why don't we try to do that with another list? I was thinking through it, and so what I really want to do, and when this list finally comes out, so this is like Pitchfork's 25th anniversary this year, and Mm. um, they're doing, they're eventually going to release a list of, like, the best albums of the past 25 years. It's like they had readers vote on it, and I think they're going to have their own institutional list as well, but this week, from Monday, they released the 200 greatest artists of the past 25 years unranked Mm. though so we can't really do that on the year we're going to read all 200 which you know maybe eventually and then uh today they rescored albums that they thought they had scored either too high or too low upon their initial release um uh, including relevant to last episode uh daft punk's discovery they said should be higher and random access memories they should they said should be lower much to Lars's chagrin yeah random access memories is the better of those two sure (laughs) um but it's like one more time, Dan. And, and, I don't know. Uh, anyway, it's like Sophie's <laughs> Choice, Lars. They're both good. I'm just random access memories is more of an achievement. Whatever. Discovery on, is, is more influential. But anyway, um, you could say the very disco discovery led to random access memories. Um, well, yes. Mike, for anyone who just might not know could you just explain pitchfork yeah so pitchfork uh they build themselves as the most trusted name in music um <laughs> other than our very own michael levito of course so i mean so if they do release that list and we get to talk about it, it'll be interesting right because um today we're going to talk about the rolling stone list of greatest albums of all time that came out last year but um what's interesting is that pitchfork kind of arose as more or less an oppositional force against like rolling stone and spin and all these other mainstream music publications because their whole thing was that they were covering they didn't cover pop music at all initially right they covered sort of the quote-unquote underground and indie rock scenes 
and with some rap as well. And the writing was initially like very irreverent and very kind of out there. You know, in a way, it kind of tried to do what the early Rolling Stone or like Cream did, where, you know, it was not sort of like they weren't straight reviews, right? Like, there was uh, one review of a Jimmy Eat World album where the writer Brent DiCrescenzo, who's kind of like the most infamous pitchfork writer, wrote it as a dialogue between like two uh, government agents deciding what to torture people with at Guantanamo Bay and eventually deciding on this album because they thought it was so bad. Um, So there were things like that (laughs) they were writing. And eventually they gained a lot of clout. They became basically the most sort of like widely referred to um, music website. And they essentially still are, right? I mean, when when an artist releases an album, like whatever the Pitchfork store is going to be, can be a story. Um, And there was a time where getting a 10, well, getting a 10 out of 10 is very rare. But there was a time where if you got a zero out of zero on Pitchfork, it was like a death sentence. Um, Does that mean it's bad? Yes. Yeah. They, they they score their albums on on a, on a scale from zero to ten, and like they do it with like every decimal point in between. So it's like you don't just get like an eight; you get like an eight point two or an eight point seven or something like that. Um, <laughs> to, you get one decimal point in between. Well, yes, yes, yeah. Um, and and it, it, it's re- it, it's kind of become the authoritative. It Rolling Stone has kind of become. People make fun of Rolling Stone a lot, and they make fun of Pitchfork too, but Pitchfork has, I think, kind of become the the standard in music writing and um, has been very influential in its time. It's, it's essentially launched the careers of some artists. Like I said, it's, launched, it's destroyed the careers of some artists and has been at the nexus of this change in music coverage where they were initially, like I said, they didn't cover pop music. Um, they did not write a Taylor Swift review until she released 1989, which was like 24. 15, I think, something like that. Um, and then they retroactively reviewed all her albums, right? It was a very big deal. And they're at kind of the nexus of what the raucous versus poptimist wars, to bring up a sort of over-discussed topic. Um, so that's who Pitchfork are. Um, and they've also done a very big, good job of sort of like, they, they have best songs of the 60s list, best songs of the 70s list, same thing with albums for all those decades. They try to do their part in building the canon. They actually have a book they released in 2007 called The 500 Greatest Songs um, from Punk to Present, which starts in 1977 and then goes up to 2007. Anyway, that's Pitchfork. But we're talking about Rolling Stone today. <laughs> and uh, it's fine. Can <laughs> uh, you explain Rolling yeah, Stone? Yeah, <laughs> so I, I, I did have to write a paper on Rolling Stone last semester. Um, Inter- I think, I think most people know about Rolling Stone. Yes, they already. do. Um, yeah. Uh, but, yeah, like I said, we're going to look at the top ten list of their 500 greatest albums of all time and just talk about it, I guess, the way we did last time. So, uh, number ten on their list of the 500 greatest albums of all time is also, I believe, the most recent album to be in the top ten of this list is The Miseducation of Lauren Hill by Lauren Hill. I have never listened to this album outside of two what? Or three songs. Yeah. How have you never listened to this album? I, I feel like it's one of the most famous albums of all time. It is. It was the first hip-hop album to, if you consider it hip-hop, some people don't, but it was the first hip-hop album to win the Grammy Album of the Year. Um, I've just Michael. never gotten around to it, and I know people love it, and it's great, and I probably should listen to it, but it just never happened, so... I'll have to take Rolling Stone's work for it on this one. This this is so exciting. I get to be like <laughs> the 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 source of like knowledge of music right now. It's good. Lewis, have you heard it? 
I've heard of it, and I know okay. Lauren Hill because we're both from the same um, place. Like she's from my hometown, South Orange, and I believe she still lives there. And uh, just to quickly add an addendum to the many saints in Newark, they, they did reference South Orange. <laughs> they did. And East Orange a couple of times, which I don't believe they actually ever referred to South Orange on the show. So I was excited to have them name drop that. But yeah, um, I know, is Duop on yes, Miss Education? Is. Yeah. Yeah, so there's Duop. And I know Lauren Hill. And then she famously has never done, she hasn't really done an album since. She's probably done a couple it's, things since. It's, I know it's, it's I like know the it's Firefly of its time, right? It's like. Uh, well, it's probably better than Firefly on average, <laughs> but you know, it's like it's like it because it was capped and because she never did anything else. It's like perfect, right? Yeah. Well, that's the thing. That's I feel like all you have to know about it is that Lauren Hill is kind of still talked about in hushed tones, and it's yeah. all on the strength of this one album and her work with the Fugees beforehand. Yeah. Um, I know. But they also only really. I think they only released like one or two albums too. So. Yeah. yeah. Well, since you guys haven't heard it, I won't drone on. It's just like. A very important, it's like possibly the most oh. important album from the 90s, or certainly one of the most important albums from the 90s. And like, yeah, you don't get like Beyonce's post Destiny Child work without this album, mm. I think would be fair to say. Interesting. Oh, God. <laughs> Lewis famously hates Beyonce. What? 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 No, what? I what? Beyonce's overrated. <laughs> I. Oh yeah, she, she's very good. She may not be the greatest artist of all time. She's but like on the list where, including Picasso, she's <laughs> one of those people who receives so much praise and so much effusive commentary that it is impossible for her to not be overrated, right? Fine. Yeah, that's that's my I take. We can on, all concede she's still very talented. I, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I guess then in that case that Lauren Hill is the inverse of Beyonce and is probably underrated. I, she's probably underrated. I, I feel like by well, I mean, just in the sense that you know, time time goes on, and right. then, you know, people yeah. will forget. Yeah. yeah, people talk about Beyonce this much, but I mean, I feel like you and I, all of us, would probably agree that Lauren Hill is probably better than Beyonce, right? I have um, listened to the album, like I said. I probably would not say that. I just feel like Beyonce's done. All right, then why are we talking about this? Why isn't Beyonce's yeah, album at number 10 on this list, all right? <laughs> I'll, I'll listen Jesus to... Jesus Christ. I'll listen to this album this week and get back to you on that. But okay. she she interests me more, I'll say that. Um, no, yeah, she's very interesting. It's, it's a it's a good top 10 pick. I'm fine with this. Okay. You guys haven't listened to it, so what do you get to say? I mean, how many albums did you listen to the last time? <laughs> I don't think I listened they, to... Like... Those were songs. Were they songs? They were, yes. Yeah, okay. and most of them I had listened to. <laughs> this is just exciting for me, because I've now listened <laughs> to this influential album before apparently Michael has. <laughs> yeah, I just, I mean, look, it, it speaks, to, it's, it is my own fault and my own genre biases that made it so I haven't gotten to this album yet. I'll fully admit that, but... Um, Mike wouldn't understand all the South Orange references. <laughs> <laughs> That's probably true. Yeah, the Fujis actually have done. They're they they're doing some reunion shows this uh, year, um, which will be interesting because because they famously don't like each other anymore. So, um, yeah. Anyway, sounds like the Pony Express. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so Lauren Hill, um, number nine is "Blood on the Tracks" by Bob Dylan. This is great. Now you and I can switch spots, Mike. <laughs> 
Well, so I never heard it. Have you heard it, Lewis? Uh, Bob Dylan is not from South Orange. So. No, he's not. <laughs> so, no. <laughs> no, I, 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 I think I, I know one song on this album. I could probably count the amount of albums I've listened to uh, all the way through on like my two hands and two feet. Um, Fair enough. Um, I, yeah, it's very, very doubtful. That that's fair, oh. and a lot of those are best of albums, <laughs> right? What 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 song do you think? Best you can of name? Weird Al. <laughs> it's the essential um, Weird is, Al. Is, okay, it has thirty eight <laughs> greatest tracks. <laughs> what what song do you think um, you can what, name from this, Lars? Is like a Rolling Stone on this album? No, it is not. Okay, then I cannot name a song on this album. Excuse um, me. Is All Along the Watchtower on it? Uh, it is not. <laughs> Lewis is literally holding the essential weird out of the camera right now. This is like one of two CDs I own. Um, you should write Rolling Stone, Lewis. Alpocalypse. <laughs> now he's holding up Alpocalypse. Mike, does this album deserve to be on the top ten? So if you know two songs from this album, it's Tangled Up in Blue or Shelter from the Storm. Um, nope. Here's the thing. So Bob I mean, Dylan, you've probably heard Shelter from the Storm. Yeah, you've... Yeah, you, Shelter probably... from the storm. No, that's the doors. <laughs> it's Riders from the Storm. Um, you, I, I have listened to this album a few times. People always say, you know, it's a big deal because it's like it's like his breakup album. It's kind of like the prototypical breakup album. And my feeling with it is that I could tell you those two song what those two songs sound like. I can't tell you what the other songs sound like. It it just hasn't clicked for me yet. And I'm not, like, the world's biggest Bob Dylan fan. I recognize his importance and his artistry and all that. It's just not a thing I, I just will, like, put on in the middle of the day. Um, it's, I, I prefer, I prefer his, <laughs> this album's from 1975, and I just prefer his 60s stuff. I, I would rather listen yeah. to Highway 61 Revisited or... Um, I'm surprised they picked a 70s Guano. album. Well, it's, it, it's, well, go ahead. Well, I was going to say, most everyone... I've heard a couple people in bad taste because he famously got in an accident towards the end of the 60s and they said like if he had just died right there he'd be hailed as like one of the greatest people ever so I've you know people don't really hold a lot of his work post the 60s in that much of a regard so I'm surprised they picked that as one of the top 10 albums I mean it's really the late 70s where he starts to fall off for most people and but like this is because if you're talking about like the art of the album like this is like I said it's like the prototypical breakup album and if you're thinking if you're talking about something that's sort of like you know, at, looking at that medium as a storytelling medium, like that is kind of the, where the value from this album comes. So I, I get why, but like I said, it's not the first Bob Dylan album I would pick. Okay. Um, number eight, Purple Rain by Prince and the Revolution. Have you listened to this, Lars? <laughs> I have. Oh. Have you? I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not a huge Prince fan, so I, I don't think it deserves to be top 10, was, but whatever. I, I was waiting for Lars to be like, no, Lewis, I haven't listened to it. I'd be like, why not? What's the matter with you? <laughs> <laughs> Dumb piece of crap. Um, no, yeah, I, I've listened to this album all the way through from beginning to end multiple times. It is a good album. And I, 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 I'm like in the same boat as Lars. I don't really know a lot of Prince's work outside of uh, this album. But I, I do enjoy this album, and it is certainly well-regarded, and I agree. I don't know if it's the number eighth greatest album, but I, I think it's a very good album. Yeah, yeah. I'm in that same boat. <laughs> I think, look, Prince, another artist who's, like I said, you, he can only be overrated. He's praised so much. 
I feel like that's intensified in the years since his death. Um, and he's, I think, taken up this, like, weirdly, like, kind of Elvis-like, um, become this Elvis-like figure when people talk about his influence and his importance. Um, that Pitchfork list of rescoring albums they rescored, like, nobody can, like, ta- say they've actually enjoyed, like, not enjoyed, nobody can, like, name their favorite Prince album, like, since 2000, but they actually take, like, his 2004 album, like, they gave it a higher grade. Um, hmm. Yeah, can anyone even name an album after Purple Rain from Prince? Uh, yeah. I'm there's, a, there's a sequel to the film, Purple Rain, I don't even know, that Prince directed. I don't even remember what the name of that is. I'm trying to look. I'm looking at his discography. Like, Sign of the Times in 1987 was a very big deal. It got nominated for the Grammy. Um, he, he's had, he had hits after that. but No, I mean, I, I'm, I'm sure he had hits, but I'm just saying nothing is... Yeah, when it, it's the definitive Prince album. It it is his apex, and it you know this very effective bridge of like R and B and funk and pop and rock and very uh, you know omnivorous in the way a lot of future music would be. He was he was good at. So yeah, a good album. Um, top ten, maybe I don't know. If you if you think Prince is a top ten artist, I get it. Yeah. I don't think that. Yeah, and I feel like if you're yeah. gonna pick an album from the '80s, I mean, you know. Well, famously, like, a great music decade. <laughs> if you know where you Not, to look. According yeah. to my parents. <laughs> yeah. All right. 80s music. Ugh. Uh, number seven, we have Rumors by Fleetwood Mac. A band I famously hate. <laughs> yeah, oh. but, like, this album I actually completely agree with. It's, like, a top, top Mike, ten. Are you, I, I think are you... everyone in the, in the country could name, like, three songs from this album. Except maybe Lewis. <laughs> Little Lies, uh, Breaking the Chain. It's just called The Chain, but yes. Chain. <laughs> Breaking the Chain. Oh, God. And then Literally their like most famous song. The Storm, right? It's like a storm. Riders on the storm. Oh, uh, it's like someone's name, right? Lewis, you're killing me. <laughs> So you're thinking of both Dreams and Rhiannon. Dreams and Rhiannon, yes. <laughs> Rhiannon's not on this album, but Dreams is. Also, go, you're just, it's like... go your own way as well. <laughs> yeah. Yes, go your own way. I didn't know that was the title, though. Um, yeah, I know I know all those songs, right? It's just like at this moment in time. Know, what did you think the title would be to that song? What? Loving you. <laughs> no, it's just like the whole chorus of that song is like, you can go your own way. No, it's like I could like vaguely remember it, but I couldn't like yeah. get okay. the words together. Anyways, Mike, are you Lindsey Buckingham? And I, oh, because I hate Fleetwood Mac. I don't actually hate Fleetwood Mac. They're perfectly fine. I enjoy their music. The Chain's a very good song. I think this album's overrated. I'll say it. It is Ooh. only as big because it sold a lot of copies, and <laughs> it's really good. And because of the video of the guy on the skateboard. Um, has some great Tough. songs. It also has some very cheesy songs. Don't stop, cheesiest goddamn song ever written. Uh, um, Bill Clinton, though, you know, that <laughs> doesn't right. help its case. <laughs> Don't stop. Bob Bob Boyle of NPR wrote a piece where he like defends his like childhood hatred of this album again i don't hate this album i think it's good i think if you're making a list of the greatest albums of all time it has to be on here i will say that i don't yeah. think it's a top 10 album 
Yeah, uh, that's fine. I, I think it. It's. I'm, I like this album, so I think it's probably a top ten. Yeah, I think. I mean, I've only listened to it a couple of times, recently actually, and uh, I think I think it's um, really good. I've I've talked to you with the, you about this before, Mike. There's something about Little Lies. It just like it doesn't sound like a song that comes from whatever is it like seventy one. It sounds like too modern. It's like there's something about it that like sticks in my brain. I think it's a really good song. It is wait, is that even on rumors now that I think about it? <laughs> I <laughs> it is not. It's on Tango. I don't Night, think so. Which yeah. is from nineteen eighty seven. What? Oh, no, way to go, yeah. Lewis. <laughs> I this I think this is the only in album in the top ten that I own on vinyl, which maybe says something about Oh no, there is one more. Never mind. Still. Okay. <laughs> well, Number six is Nevermind by Nirvana, which we kind of talked about last week when we talked about Smells Like Teen Spirit. Yeah, I'm surprised by this. I get that it's an important album and it has like a couple important songs. <laughs> I don't know. I feel like most people couldn't name more than two songs on this album. That I, well, I, I guess it depends who you ask. Is Ray I feel like most this? people who weren't like 20 in the 90s. Um, well, so it's interesting, right? Because... I was talking about how I couldn't comprehend sort of the bigness of Nirvana as, as a person who was not alive in 1991. Um, but I was actually listening to a podcast about the 30th anniversary of this album, which was a few weeks ago. And they were talking about how this album was inescapable at the time. And it did actually, like, it changed the entire face of popular music in the sense that it, like, now bands like Nirvana could be popular, right? Like, there is no... Um, there are so many, like, just even one-hit wonders of the 90s who do not get to be a one-hit, even a one-hit wonder if mm. this album never exists. So, obviously very important. It holds up as an album. Most sort of, like, quote-unquote serious music people will say that In Utero or uh, um, I was gonna, sound better. I was going to try to name two songs from the album mm-hmm. to pass Lars's test, and I won't name any of the two you just mentioned, Mike, so... Smells like Teen Spirit. Mm-hmm. Never mind. There is not a song Name. called Nevermind. <laughs> yeah. Well, darn it. Come as you are is the other yes. very big one. Th- those are the two that I were think that I am thinking of. In well, but there's so I many. Just... There's so many like just very kick-ass songs on this. In sure, Bloom, I just breed. You know, is it a top ten album? Is I guess what I'm going for. I, I, I get why it is. I, is it the fifth greatest album of all time? Well, no, it's the sixth. <laughs> so sorry is it the sixth greatest album of all time probably not but i get why okay. it's this is, i mean this is just what rolling stone does with nirvana yeah it's it, it might be the six it might be more than the sixth most important album of all time Ooh. Um, and it's a very good album people should it is better than beethoven <laughs> i mean according to this ranking <laughs> um i would say this album is, a, is definitively not overrated by the way i used to think it was it it, it's weird in that it's, it's very, like, slick, and in utero is much sort of, like, raw and Albini-ish, but this is, it's still just, the songwriting's still great. Anyway. Mike just likes the cover. Fine. <laughs> <laughs> sure. So number five is Abbey Road by the Beatles. Now, much like last time when Strawberry Fields Forever being in the top ten meant that that meant Rolling Stone thought it was the best Beatles song, this means that they think this is the best Beatles album. And while this is a good album, that is not an opinion I agree with. 
Yeah, yeah, but like I feel like this is the most inoffensive choice they have, other than maybe Lauren Hill. It's just, it's just like, yeah, fine. I mean, it's their, everyone. It's everyone it's knows this album, right? Yeah, it's their it's their last album. It's technically, let it be was re- was recorded before and then released after, right? Yeah. But um, yeah, it's this is like their last hurrah in a way. And the last song is literally called the end. So. Yep. Uh, um, what is the love you take is equal to the love you make. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so in in the sort of like boomer mythologizing that Rolling Stone is is want to engage in. <laughs> Uh, it fits in well. That's what I'll say. Yeah. Well said, Mike. You speak their language, Mike. Um, but you know, obviously, you know, it's it's got good song. I just like. What's your favorite on this album? Uh, no. Oh, you like the Beatles? <laughs> Name three of their songs, Mike. Um. Either something it's something it's the name of the song yeah yeah um oh darling is close second <laughs> and i guess i want you she's so heavy is number three yes Lars. no i just think that's a funny name for a song <laughs> oh darling no i want you she's so heavy it, it is weird cracks me up um i don't know is that the first instance this one is that the first instance of a song with parentheses? Not, not in the slightest. <laughs> oh, um, no, that is a very long tradition, and something that people don't do enough now. By the way, I think they try to make people's song titles too, too, too short nowadays. Um, <laughs> okay, boom. Just, just saying. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. <laughs> um, I pitched that to you as an article, like chronicling the history of parentheses and song <laughs> titles. It'd be, no, I, they do it less and less now. I, I think it'd be very interesting, actually. Um, number four on this list, Songs in the Key of Life by Stevie Wonder. Yes, this is the other album I own. Okay. It's a great album. Another album that is kind of a blind spot for me, I'll be honest. What? Um, yeah. Mike, Mike just wanted to what, make what, what happened in our in our in our like paths that I picked up these and you went that way? I don't know. I feel like this is such an important album. I mean, there's so many. You don't get Gangsta's Paradise without this album. That is true. That is true. <laughs> I I need to I need to I need to I need to dive deep into Stevie Wonder. I I really haven't. Um, it, well, I think you really just need to dive into this album. It's like this album actually has. Most of the songs I feel like he's most famous for. Like, I, I, w- I went through a Stevie Wonder phase like four years ago, and Mike and I actually worked together. And I just listened to this album over and over and like try to get into his other stuff, but this is like the one. This, is, this is what I'll give Stevie's. Oh, dang it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to hold up this score. This is what I give it. He said 9 out of 10. Dang yeah. it, Mike. He's... <laughs> Stevie Wonder can see this. <laughs> um, yeah, I don't have a lot more to say. Great album. Yeah, I, I don't know. He's always felt a little too major key for me, but, you know, he's Stevie Wonder. I'll give him a shot. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, pretty pretty good for someone who's blind, right? Yeah, no, absolutely, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Mike, what have you done? <laughs> that, that's a fair point. <laughs> 
can't disagree with that. Um, number three is Blue by Joni Mitchell. Once again, we're trading spots on this one, Mike. I have no idea. <laughs> it's a good color. It's a fantastic color. It's a great color. Um, Joni Mitchell, I don't know. I, I go back, like, obviously very talented songwriter, very talented vocalist and guitarist. Um, but she's not blind. She's not. That is true. Um, I This is a good album. I, it, it's not number three of all time. It's just too... It's just a little too, you know... Um, it should be on a list of greatest albums of all time, no doubt. But at the end of the day, it's just kind of like a folk rock album to me. A very well-made one, but also just kind of one. And, you know, she is was... It, is it historically important? Um, I, I, I would say it's pretty important in the fact that, you know, she was a female singer-songwriter in, like, a very male-dominated field at that point and really kind of going toe-to-toe with the Bob Dylans of the world. And, you know, her voice was pretty... Um, that perspective was pretty lacking at the time. Yeah. Um, well, how does she feel now that Bob Dylan won the Nobel Prize? She's probably very... Song? Probably I bet her face was red. <laughs> it may have been. And then she may have been blue because she didn't win it. Um, I mean, if you if you look at kind of in the way that like you know Blood on the Tracks is the sort of like prototypical breakup album. I mean, this is also just kind of like if you're a female singer songwriter, like everything's kind of going back to blue. Um, and they're like, if you look at artists nowadays like Phoebe Bridgers, Lucy Dacus, Julian Baker, like they don't they're not around without blue is what I'll say. So, yeah. Important album. Yes. Then I'll take your word for it. Okay. I don't know. <laughs> Well, I mean, it's good that Mike's knowledgeable about these music things, so he can help explain why these. No, it is. It, like, if Mal, important. if if Mike is like, this album belongs in the top ten, I'll usually probably say, yeah, that makes sense. I, I don't know if I, I guess it could be top ten. I don't know, top twenty probably at least. Um, okay. Number two, Pet Sounds by the Beach Boys. Um, An inoffensive pick. No. Kokomo, yeah. great song. <laughs> that was like 20 years later. Yeah. <laughs> 20 years later? Yeah, Kokomo was until the 80s. Really? This came out in the what? 60s. The, this was in the 60s, right? Yeah, yeah. It was in the 60s. Yeah, Kokomo was released as part of the Cocktail soundtrack. The Tom Cruise movie. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> I thought it was like the Beach Boys started as like this band, you know, this like you know, 50s band. They, like, did, like, you know, like, American graffiti, you know, era rock. And then they transitioned into being, like, more Beatles-like with pet sounds. But now it's, like, the opposite, I guess. They're more you like know, Elvis, I kind of think. You're, you're you're right, Lewis. It's just that Kokomo is not American graffiti-style rock. It's, like, very <laughs> clearly an 80s song. Uh, yeah, I got almost nothing to say. This is God, universally... God only knows. Acclaimed, Paul McCartney's right? favorite song. Yeah, yeah, it is. I'm, I'm sure that Brian Wilson is, if he even looked at this list, because he is famously a weird guy, is very. Well, I shouldn't say weird. He has lots of serious mental health issues. Um, <laughs> He's was pretty weird. weird. That, that was that was very <laughs> insensitive. I apologize, but um, he. I'm sure he's very happy that this is higher than Sgt. Pepper's, which is the album that like, uh, you know, he always always trying to one up. Um, yeah but yeah you know obviously 
hugely influential in using the studio as an instrument. And like you said, Lars, non-controversial pick. If you ask a lot of people what the greatest album of all time was, they might say this. Or they yeah. might say... <laughs> or it might say really... the number one choice, which was What's Going On by Marvin Gaye. We talked a bit about this in our last one because the song What's Going On was on the songs list. And yeah, you know, a great album. Uh, I don't know if it'd be my choice for number one. But yeah, great album, great huge scope, a uh, one of the greatest American vocalists at the top of his game, you know. It's yeah. Kind of a weirdo but... though, right? <laughs> <laughs> oh my god. Um, no, I I agree, Mike. It's yeah, it's probably not my favorite album of all time, but it's like I don't think you could make a top ten list without this. Yeah. Would I... you agree with that? Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I do wonder if it would be number one if we hadn't. So this list was released in September of 2020. I do wonder if this be is number one if we don't go through the summer of 2020, and when this um felt like it was becoming more, uh, yeah, just 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 new newly relevant. Well, what if this list was done in early 2000, and then Purple Rain's number one because everyone's listening to Party like it's 1999. <laughs> I mean. Maybe, but de- that definitely would not have been number one in then, but uh, that's a good question. That's the very No, I'm saying people would have been would listening still, my, to it again. My, yeah. and it, my point is this would still very much be in the top ten absolutely, in 2000. Yeah, no, yes, yeah. you are right. You are right. So I think that is a sign that it probably deserves to be on this list. I would agree. If not number, you know, number one, maybe number two, number three. Yeah. So what do we think? Do we think this list... Did, did this ruffle you as much as the song one, or, or do you feel better about this one? I feel a little better about this one, I think. It's like the the one that, the only one I really remember from the song one, other than, you know, the obvious Marvin Gaye song, is like, Hey Ya, was which seven. is like, that stuck, to, right, which stuck with me, because it's like, that is kind of like maybe one of the greatest songs of all yeah. time, the more I thought about right. it. Whereas, you know, this is like, you know, I feel like half of these were like, yeah, these deserve to be here, this is no question. And the other half, either some of us hadn't listened to, or some of us, <laughs> like, were just like, "Oh, that's not our thing," but it's clearly important, right? Yeah, yeah. There, there are definitely albums I would put in here instead of some of these, but name them. Really? Just Bacara soundtrack. Give me like two. Or Life three. is a highway. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I think. I, I I would put my beautiful dark twisted fantasy in here. I would put to pimp a butterfly in here. Mm-hmm. Those are my personal preference. I think both of those are better than Bob Dylan or Prince. <laughs> that's just my That's thing. his name. <laughs> no, I, I mean, that, that's, you know, I, I feel like those would be somewhat non-controversial substitutes. It's like, I feel like those are both hi- very highly acclaimed albums. Mm-hmm. A little more recent. I think it wouldn't hurt the Rolling Stone to have, like, a recent couple of albums in here. Because especially, like, hip-hop uh, has... You know, it's a more recent kind of musical invention. Yeah, I, it's interesting that there is no album from the 2000s or 2010s. There were two 2000s songs in the songs list. Um, yeah. As far as, like, hip-hop, like, I feel like you could make an argument for, like, uh, Enter the Wu-Tang, right? I feel like. Yeah. Or The Chronic um, as, like, top ten albums. Or All Eyes on Me or Ready to Die. Like you know or informer by snow <laughs> well not. and uh, to be fair when i scroll back you know to like the 
10 to 20, 10 to 30 best albums. It's like My Beautiful Dark Twisted Fantasy is 17. Yeah. Spin Butterfly is 19. Uh, you know, Straight Out of Compton and the Wu Tang Clan are in here too. It's like they're around here. You know, so it's there. we're not far off. Yeah. yeah, they're there. They're just a little bit further. I mean, Beyonce's Lemonade is in the 30s. We're not far off. But yeah, yeah I'd probably put those in instead of Prince myself. Okay. You'd rather put Beyonce's Lemonade in instead of Purple Rain? No. No, no, no. That's not what I said. It is. I would rather... My Beautiful Dark Twisted <laughs> Fantasy, I would put in instead of Purple Rain. Oh, okay, yeah. To Pimp a Butterfly, I would put in instead of Bob Dylan. Okay. I would probably put Lemonade above both of those albums, because I like Beyonce better than I like Bob Dylan or Prince. <laughs> but I would not put it in the top ten. Fair enough. All right. Just for reference, this was the top 10 in the 2003 list. Um, it was The Beatles' White Album was number 10. Uh, Blonde on Blonde by Bob Dylan was number 9. London Calling by The Clash was number 8. Exile on Main Street by The Rolling Stones was number 7. What's Going On by Marvin Gaye was number 6. Rubber Soul by The Beatles was number 5. Highway 61 Revisited by, by, excuse me, by Bob Dylan was number 4. Revolver by The Beatles was number 3. Pet Sounds by The Beach Boys was number 2. Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band by the Beatles number one. That's a better list. Yeah, I actually kind of like that list better because well, it's like half Beatles. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, uh, I. How do you think that weirdo Brian Wilson feels about his album <laughs> being unchanged from the number two spot? I mean, cons- it's like, what do I have to do? <laughs> Considering that Sergeant Pepper's dropped down, I think he feels pretty good about it. Yeah, there's something to be said for consistency. <laughs> All right. Well, yeah. any, anything else about this list? <laughs> I didn't really care much for it. Okay. Yeah, I, I cared for half of it. Yeah, I, I think I guess I kind of like the 2003 list better. The 2003 list is, yeah, I guess so. Um, Music's just not any good anymore. We, we can make our own list, Mike. We can. We can all draft our own albums and vote on them. We can. All right. Um, well, this has been this week's episode of Pony Express. As always, I'm your host, Mike Levito. You can find me on Twitter at MLevito and Letterboxd at Ameramike. I'm your friend, Lars Emerson. You can find me on Letterboxd at Lars Emerson. Uh, I'm Lewis Ryan. You can find me on MySpace and AOL Online Messenger. <laughs> uh, you can find the Pony Express anywhere you listen to podcasts, including thepostwriter.com, where we have plenty of other podcasts for you to listen to as well and plenty of articles for you to read. Until next time, this is Mike Levito saying goodbye. <laughs> Bye, Mike. <laughs>